When Russia launched its full-scale assault on Ukraine on February 24th, it was obviously a huge story. Broadcasting schedules were cleared, presses were stopped, the global media circus acted swiftly to erect its big top in Kiev, and quite rightly. This was a major state-on-state land war in Europe, with a secondary plot of nuclear standoff between a belligerent Russia and a NATO wondering how obviously it dare aid Ukraine struggle. What else was there to talk about? Five months later, Ukraine has dropped down. The running orders faded from the front pages. This is, in some respects, only natural. After a while, any kind of novelty becomes normal. The storm becomes weather. One does not require a long memory to recall a time when the four-year siege of a European capital, Sarajevo, dwindled into background noise. Wars are fought with stories as well as with guns. The story Ukraine has to tell is one of the classics, the beleaguered underdog resisting a mighty oppressor against all odds. And it's a story Ukraine needs to keep telling. If the world's attention diminishes, the world's resolve to help Ukraine defend itself may fracture. How is it that we manage to zone out of something as monstrous and important as a war on our continent? What can be done to keep people watching? And what might it mean for Ukraine if they stop? This is the Foreign Desk. Yes, you have the rising prices, the fuel prices, the food prices, but we have the same problems here. The petrol prices have gone up as well. That's when we have petrol. We don't know what's going to be in winter time because we don't know where we're going to be getting our gas from. So we have all the same things, but on top of that, we have the Russian missiles to hide from. Ukraine, of course, is a European country, so this is happening in our continent and in our time. But back in 92 to 95, Bosnia was also a European country. And after a time, we found it very difficult to get any attention, whatever, to what was going on, however spectacular. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll hear from the veteran BBC foreign correspondent Martin Bell, who knows better than most how hard it can be to keep audiences and editors interested in ongoing conflicts. But we'll start with Monocle 24's own Carlotta Ribello and Chris Chermak, who have been reporting for us from Ukraine all this week. Carlotta, let's start with you. Can you give us some general impressions of your trip? Hi, Andrew. Yes, it's been uh, quite a few couple of days now. We're on day seven of our trip. And both Chris and I, we were quite looking forward to not only seeing things with our own eyes, but also get a, a real sense by being in Ukrainian cities of what actually is the mood on the ground. We started in the west of the country in Lviv and traveled to Kiev, and we still have a few more stops on the way down south before we leave the country. And so far, you know, the impressions is is just how remarkably resilient the population is. Both of us have been struck by these moments of joy and this eagerness to carry on always of course with the consciousness of the real threat to their lives but everyone we speak some people who had to change their entire move their entire lives to other parts of the country or outside of the country or are struggling with that process now and just overall they've been the most you know welcoming people we've met is just really remarkable the dignity and just the generosity we've encountered. I don't know if you sympathize with that, Chris. 
Yes, I think definitely the dignity is a, is a word we've heard also from officials that we've spoken to. Uh, ambassadors use that when they describe people here. Uh, I will say from my side, having been here just before the invasion and now, there is a sort of surreal factor to it because I think it is easy to walk the streets of Kiev, walk the streets of Lviv and other places we've been, Chernihiv, even, even Bucha, and you almost feel like this is somehow part of history. It's kind of hard to register when you now walk around as somebody who hasn't been here the last five months that this was only a few months ago that these places were attacked, these places were targeted, these places were bombed. So I think what has been really important and where I've gotten a real sense of what has happened is speaking to people here. And everyone here has a story. Everyone here has things that they are living with that have happened to them, have happened to friends, family, their homes. And that's something that they are living with. So on, on the one hand, yes, you have this sense when you walk around here that things are somewhat back to normal. Even Bucha was somewhat back to normal when we spoke to the local uh, deputy mayor there. But at the same time, you know what everybody here has been through and what they tell us about what they have been through. And that's obviously not something you forget. Well, one of the people I know you have spoken to is Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev and former heavyweight champion of the world. Let's hear some of what he had to say. It's very important for us to feel support. I know there are millions of refugees right now in Europe and around the world. We need the help because our economy is destroyed, our infrastructure is destroyed, the life of Ukrainians is destroyed, and right now we need political support, we need economic support, and we need also defensive weapons support. Defensive weapons because we defend our country. Ukraine is actually always was peaceful country where live peaceful people. We never ever was aggressive to anyone. And right now the Russians want to occupy our country and that's why we need support and Russians break all international rules. And the Russians accept just the power and we have to be so strong to defend our homeland. And we need the help and want to say thank you very much for everyone who supports Ukraine. It's very important. And also messages we uh, fighting for Europe. We fighting for and defending values, democratic values. We don't want to live in, in, in dictator, in authority. We fighting right now for European values, human rights, press of freedom, democratic values. What are we fighting for? Well, what we want to talk about in this episode is this idea of Ukraine fatigue, that after five months or so of this conflict, people's attention has drifted elsewhere. What sense were you able to get of that on the ground? Is that a concern that people in Ukraine have, that the world's attention has wandered off and that people are worried about other things now? Yes, Andrew, I can say that is definitely a concern here from different people we've spoken to. There's a number of different ways I think that people here approach making an argument about that. One is just this argument that this war is different, I think people try to make the case, particularly to Europeans, they try to make the case, even Vitaly Klitschko, you know, very much still is making that same case that he has been for the last few months when you ask him about this, that, you know, this is a war of a democracy against an autocracy, a dictatorship. The other way that some people have tried to get at why this matters, 
this idea that, yes, okay, you may be tired of this in Europe, you have a cost of living crisis, just imagine that everything you are having is 10 times, 20 times, 30 times worse here in Ukraine. We are tired as well. I will say as well what I found interesting speaking to a couple is there is also that sense you get even within Ukraine about, you know, it depends on kind of where you are. There are different forms of this fatigue and concern about the international community. We spoke to one journalist from Donbass and one of her concerns was that the East specifically would be more forgotten by the international community or even by Ukraine itself, that she worried that the focus is now perhaps on recovering the south of Ukraine and would not be on doing what it takes in order for Donbass to remain Ukrainian as this war continues. So her sort of plea, if you will, to the international community was very much that that too must remain in focus. We cannot forget about the Donbass, her home that she has fled in order to come to Kiev. And Andrew, we also need to remember, we are here in this visit during the summertime. Both of us are very aware we've been privileged enough so far to somehow have not heard any air raid sirens. So we understand our privilege traveling around. And one of the people who also spoke to us was the mayor of Lviv, who mentioned the summer and the blue skies. And he was saying, you know, we cannot afford to have a summer holiday. All of Europe is enjoying the summer now, and there's no rest for the summer here in Ukraine. You know, this doesn't apply just, of course, to the troops that are in the front line, but for the thousands of volunteers across the country in all parts from distributing aid to politics. There's this real sense that, yes, the weather might be nice, you might be tired, but we can't give up now because that's the only way that we continue to bring attention, that you continue to have the international uh, community with us. And one person that really put this in perspective for us was the director of the National Philharmonic in Lviv. Let's have a quick listen. I think we, it's not a good idea every day tell only we need support. <laughs> we need peace, we need victory, we need to continue our uh, music life. I also did want to ask, because you did speak to some Ukrainian MPs, quite a few of whom have been previous guests on the Foreign Desk and on our other programmes, how are they still finding, I guess, the strength and the will to carry on getting up and continuing to try and govern the country? Well, I think what was interesting, speaking to a couple of the parliamentarians who we've had before, this is perhaps one sign as well of what is changing a little bit after five months. When you speak to parliamentarians, especially some of their regulars, but also opposition parliamentarians that we speak to, they do, of course, see a role for parliaments. They see a role for the opposition in keeping things transparent, in, to some degree, holding uh, the government and Zelensky to account, even if they all emphasize that we remain unified as a country. So I think that is one of the key elements that you hear from parliamentarians. And otherwise, in terms of their message to the international community, it is about this fact that, yes, things may, five months on, things seem normal in some ways in Kiev, 
But that's not the reality. There is a war going on, and that's something the international community has to understand. And to illustrate as well the point that you know the international community is still quite present. So when we've been meeting with some of these members of parliament and other politicians, they've been telling us of you know this week I've already hosted you know three or four different foreign delegations. We've had meetings postponed because there was a last-minute delegation of diplomats and politicians coming from Poland, for example. But of course, Ukrainians that we speak to understand that concern and it's obvious that when you open the news it's no longer entire back-to-back coverage about what's happening in Ukraine and I guess that's why they're so keen on getting this message out to continue to ensure it continues on the headlines but let's hear then from uh, one of the MPs we spoke to Lesia Vaksilienko. Oh god we are tired <laughs> we're exhausted but we cannot allow ourselves to just lie down and bury our face in the in the pillows and just sob it out and cry it out yeah we can do it for like five minutes 15 minutes when it really gets tough but then we have to get up and we have to continue fighting each one of us having our own fight the soldiers are out there in the field shooting down the russian missiles and rockets the nurses are out there in the hospital nursing the wounded. The teachers are preparing for a very tough school year which is probably going to be partly online again. The families who have had to relocate to the west of Ukraine are rebuilding homes, are restarting new lives. Each one of us is doing the best that we can to keep living and to keep fighting for Ukraine because we don't have another choice in Ukraine. And when I hear arguments about, oh, well, we have our own business to, uh, to, to look to in the West, I agree with that completely. I mean, yes, uh, you have the rising prices, the fuel prices, the food prices, which are going up. Everything is becoming more and more expensive and there's more and more uncertainty in the world. But we have the same problems here. The food prices have gone up here in Ukraine as well. The petrol prices have gone up as well that's when we have petrol we don't know what's going to be in winter time because we don't know where we're going to be getting our gas from we don't know how we're going to manage the heating issues that's still a question a challenge that is being solved by our government so we have all the same things but on top of that we have the russian missiles to hide from that finally there was the Ukrainian MP Lesia Vazelenko, and before that we were speaking to Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello and Chris Chermak. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined now by Monocle's Ukraine correspondent, Olga Tokariuk, who has been travelling around the country with Chris and Carlotta. Olga, first of all, I want to go back to the weeks and months just before the invasion. What do we know at this point about what kind of communications strategising had gone on within Ukraine's government about how they were going to handle it if and when Russia did come over the border? Well, we know that the Ukrainian government tried to downplay the threat in the weeks and months before the invasion. So basically they were telling the Ukrainian people that it is unlikely that the invasion will happen. And in famously in one of his speeches, just weeks before the invasion, President Zelensky told Ukrainians that they should be preparing to have their barbecues in May. And a lot of people actually took that literally, you know, and they in a way underestimated the threat of 
Russian invasion. I think the threat of Russian full-scale invasion was underestimated not only by the population, but also by many officials. And the officials I've been speaking to actually confirmed that. Some of them say we really did not expect that coming. So even assuming that the government and the president himself, he knew that it was coming, but the communication definitely was not reflecting that. And I think, uh, you know, now there is also some criticism actually in the Ukrainian society as these first weeks and months of war are over and people are able to kind of start reflecting again, you know, on what was happening, what was preceding this war. So the questions are starting to be asked on whether uh, this uh, communication strategy that was chosen by Zelensky, by the government, was correct. Because especially people who lost their loved ones, who were escaping under the bombs, you know, whose cars were shelled and by Russians, they are saying, well, if we knew that this was coming, we would have escaped days before, weeks before, we would have planned our departure, but we had to leave under this like very dire circumstances. So there is some like criticism and, you know, reflection emerging. But of course, like we can also understand the reasons why the government's strategy of communication was like this. And Zelensky himself was saying that he didn't want to scare off the investors. He didn't want to damage the economy even before the invasion started to make, uh, you know, businesses flee. And we see now the heavy toll on the Ukrainian economy. It is suffering tremendously. So possibly this was an attempt to somehow just avoid additional losses for the economy even before the invasion started. Once the invasion did start, though, Ukraine's government had what appeared to be a natural advantage in that quite a lot of President Zelensky's inner circle is, of course, a production company, Kvartal 95, who'd been responsible for lots of television programs, including Servant of the People. Once they started having to communicate as a government at war, how much of Kvartal 95's previous work did you see in those communications? Well, I think the team of President Zelensky, his advisors and the government team, while it consists partially of his old pals, uh, you know, working with him on Quartal 95, there are also a lot of new faces, new people who joined his team either during the presidential campaign, such as the Minister of Digital Transformation, who was the head of his marketing campaign during the presidential campaign. I think a big role was also played by the foreign ministry and by Minister Kuleba himself, who is a very good, excellent communicator. He's demonstrated that in the years preceding the invasion, he's a, an author of a book on information, the importance of the fighting disinformation, the importance of communication. So he's a very good communicator. So while partially this communication strategy was indeed drafted and created by former colleagues of President Zelensky from Quartal 95, a lot of new professionals also participated in devising it. And I think, you know, brought a lot of new creative ideas with also a deep understanding of what kind of messages will work for different audiences. And I think in this sense, it's really remarkable that the messaging of President Zelensky, his speeches in different parliaments of different countries, they were always tailored for a specific audience of that country, like 
some historical events that define the history of that country were mentioned. In Spain, they were speaking about Guernica. In uh, Ireland, they were speaking about the famine. And, you know, in the U.S., about Pearl Harbor, right? So every time the narrative and the speeches were tailored, and I think this is actually the merit of the foreign ministry and the foreign policy advisors who were familiar with the specifics and who helped to devise this sort of messaging for different audiences. So on that thought, what's your sense of how the messaging has changed over the five months of this war? Because obviously at the start, he knows he has the world's attention. And also he understands communications and the media well enough to understand to know that people's attention eventually fades. What's your sense of how Ukraine's official messaging has tried to find new ways to keep people interested? You know, I think actually the president Zelensky's messaging has not really changed remarkably. So he was calling on military support to Ukraine at the very beginning of this war, and he still continues doing that. You know, he's also speaking now more about uh, Russian war crimes, about the necessity to prosecute those responsible. So his messaging is consistent, I would say. What has changed and what has transformed is I think that now there are more formats of communication are being used by the Ukrainian authorities. And by that, I mean that other agencies and other faces in and close to President Zelensky, uh, you know, inner circle, they started to join this messaging and like they started to communicate more with the world. With that, I mean, uh, for example, the digital transformation platform that they are launching, they just announced recently that they'll be launching a website in English, like in media, in English, targeting international audiences and telling them what is happening in Ukraine. Again, there is criticism in Ukraine because it's yet another media in the control of the state. So there are, of course, like questions in the journalists community to that, how reliable it will be. Will it be government propaganda? Will it be like really reliable information? And actually, can we call it that a media? And then another, I think, how the strategy, the communication strategy has been transformed and the new faces that joined this effort I think what we see in the last weeks especially is emergence of the first lady, Olena Zelenska, as a very powerful communicator. While President Zelensky is staying in Ukraine, he's not going abroad. He's uh, speaking to other world leaders and international audiences online. The first lady in the last weeks has traveled abroad. She gave several interviews to different international media in the US, in the UK, in Italy, in Spain. And we've seen her speaking to the US Congress this week, and she'll be hosting the Summit of First Ladies very soon. And I think the emergence of these new actors and new faces who are joining this effort to spread the word about Ukraine, to avoid this Ukraine fatigue, to keep Ukraine on the agenda, it's something really like creative, it's smart. And it's something that really helps to keep the attention on Ukraine, communicating in different ways, in different formats, while the messaging stays the same and stays consistent. That was Monocle's Ukraine correspondent, Olga Tokariuk. 
You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. I'm joined, finally, by Martin Bell. Martin covered conflict for the BBC for decades, reporting from Vietnam, the Middle East, various parts of Africa, Northern Ireland, and probably most famously, Bosnia-Herzegovina, where he was wounded during the siege of Sarajevo. Martin is the author of several books, including, most pertinently to this discussion, War and the Death of News, Reflections of a Grade B Reporter. Martin, first of all, is it only natural, do you think, that after an amount of time people start to tune out of any story, no matter how big it seemed when it began? I think so. I think this applies especially to any conflict, however global its importance. And of course, the longer it's gone on, very often the harder it is for the journalists present to uh, get a hearing. For me, this goes back to Vietnam in 1972, November that year. I was a witness of a ferocious battle on Highway 1 between the South Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, and it was very dramatic and consequential. It took four days to get this footage to London because there were no satellites then. And on the 5th of November that year, it was dropped from the running order in preference for a story about 12 dead swans on the Upper Thames. That's how it happens. Is it just the case as well that what seems local to people is always going to seem more important to them? That, if you like, 12 dead swans in a river near them is going to seem more important than a battle happening half a world away? I think the measure of distance is important. Ukraine, of course, is a European country. So this is happening in our continent and in our time. But back in 92 to 95, Bosnia was also a European country. This was the most consequential war in Europe since 1945. And after a time, we found it very difficult to get any attention, whatever, to what was going on, however spectacular. That phrase you used just there, in our continent, in our time, was a phrase I'm pretty sure you used in a report from Bosnia. Was that kind of a cry of frustration at the time? It was. It was a phrase I used from a cellar in Archmici, where an entire family of Muslims had been burned to death by Croats. And I used the phrase to try to grab people's attention. This is not a faraway country of which we know little. It's part of our continent. You have to be careful with this because you can't go crusading. People don't want that and it's not the job of a reporter. But I will confess to having felt quite frustrated at times. The Armitia massacre was not one of those. There was no difficulty getting that on the air. But the longer the war went on and it lasted for more than three and a half years, the harder it was to get attention to it. Because this was the specific comparison that I wanted to pick up on, the comparison between Ukraine and Bosnia. And and there are some similarities in that this is a war happening in Central Europe, and it has already, in Ukraine's case, begun to drop down the running order. Now, even at the time, if you think back to Bosnia, despite what we were talking about at the top of this interview, about how people naturally tune out of things or perhaps just begin to incorporate a story into their own worldview, as just a fact of life. How strange did it seem at the time that there was a European capital under actual siege for nearly four years and it was quite difficult after a point to get people to pay much attention to it? At the initial outbreak of the war in April 1992, it was quite easy because it was something new. It was spectacular. The fighting was going on mostly in Sarajevo but elsewhere as well in front of our eyes. 
and that lasted for the summer of 92. Then in the October of 92, the UN troops started arriving. And of course, a lot of the early deployments was over the British battalion. And so there was a lot of interest in that. But as the war ground on, it was harder and harder to find a place for it in the running orders of the main news programs until in about the spring of, of 95, I find I was bound, I was almost completely frustrated. I was cut out from the Serb side by the Serbs. The, the government forces were enforcing field security. So most of our coverage of the war was for sort of a couple of miles on the in on and around the main street in Sarajevo. And one of the reasons it was hard to get it used was simply that the people felt they'd seen it all before. Once you'd reached that point and you were finding it harder and harder to get stories about Bosnia on the news, what kind of stories did prove the exception to that rule? What kind of things did cut through? I think the extreme stories, sometimes the quirky stories. I had no difficulty getting on the air a story about how the United Nations rescued a tame bear from a cage outside a derelict restaurant in the front line, because it was such a bizarre occasion when they were luring this animal out of its cage with army combat rations. And it arose, it gave rise to some interesting questions, like why are we so concerned to rescue a bear when we're leaving millions of people without defense? But then as time goes by, it took a huge event to get the attention. And that event was the Srebrenica massacre in July 95. And even that, that didn't occur at all under the eyes of the camera because in a place where we weren't allowed. But as the enormity of it dawned and the necessity of an effective intervention grew, then it came back in the headlines again. When you think back to that time again, and I guess compare it with what we're seeing from Ukraine now, how do you see the difference in the way that the two governments have tried to communicate their cases, the Bosnian government of the 90s versus the Ukrainian government of now? Both of them, I think, have been uh, very effective in their public information campaigns. The Serbs at the time, much less so, they'd given up on the press and the press on them. But just as Zelensky is an adroit user of the media, especially television, so the Bosnian government had Haris Salajic, who was prime minister at the time. And one of the UN commanders told me, who had borne the brunt of his eloquence, that he thought that Salajic, by his interventions, by his appeal to world opinion, he spoke good Arabic as well, had the value to the Bosnian government side of the equivalent of about a brigade of, of trained troops. So it's that similarity. The difference, I would say, has been technical. So many of the images of the war in Ukraine are now coming from remote platforms, drones, satellites, and we had none of that to help us, 92 to 95. So in terms of keeping a story like this in the news, which is obviously in the interests of Ukraine as it was in the interests of Bosnia, does it help massively if the story can be boiled down to one charismatic figurehead, whether it is a Salajic or it is a Zelensky? I think that is part of it. Another part is having an intelligent media operation and allowing a reasonable amount of freedom to the crews on the ground. Now as then, frontline coverage is a very dangerous enterprise and people need to know what they're doing. But you need the help of the army that you're taking images of to give you the access, to give you the freedom to broadcast 
and generally to run an intelligent operation. On the whole, I think uh, the Ukrainian forces are doing that. It is still extraordinary to me anyway that, and I'd be interested to know what you think of it, that it still has not quite dropped pennywise with a lot of governments and with a lot of militaries that actually you do yourself more favours, not by recourse to the instinct to shut journalists up and make their lives difficult, but you tend to end up serving your own cause better if you just allow them, equip them and indeed encourage them to go out and do their jobs. It's been a long, slow process as far as the British media and British armed forces are concerned. I think the low point was reached in the uh, Falklands War of 82, where there was some very distinguished reporting, but on the whole, the reporters were penned back and allowed very little freedom, and the transmission systems were crude as well. That ended, and what then began was embedding, and I claim to be the first embedded reporter in uh, with the armed force, British Armed Forces in, in 91. This is having uh, small media teams attached to active military units. And this is more or less what has happened since. Well, there are always those, sometimes quite sort of junior subalterns and so on, who take a very dim view of the press. But if you lose the war of words and the war of images, then frankly, you've lost everything and you are not appealing to the most important audience that a field commander has, which is the families of the soldiers serving under him. It's been a long, slow process, but I think the British have learned. If you're thinking of the situation in Ukraine now and looking at the attempts of the Ukrainian government to get its message across and indeed the attempts by journalists in Ukraine to do their jobs in trying to keep their publics interested, what kind of stories do you think they should be looking for? What kind of stories should they be trying to tell? People always want to know what the big picture is. How's it going? You know, who's winning, who's losing if there are particular civilian atrocities going on, which happens almost every week, then they should be shown. But I think you should spare a thought in this context for the unfortunate Western journalists, either trying or still allowed to report from Moscow under conditions of extreme difficulty, where almost nobody can speak to them about the truth of what's going on and be identified in doing so. Well, on that subject, because obviously Russia has a very different attitude to media management and communications outreach than the Ukrainians do, how mindful does everybody need to be? And I guess this is a question that especially applies to the editors which decide what gets on the news. How careful do we need to be about the fact that waning attention where Ukraine is concerned is probably exactly what Russia wants? I think Russia does want it. Russia wants the whole problem to go away. It doesn't want the Russian people to know what's happening, least of all, what the costs have been to the Russian army in particular. So I think we have it in the media, we have a duty to stay at it. And that applies especially, as you mentioned, to the editors who put the programmes out. They're the ones who decide what stays in and what goes out. And I assure you there is nothing more depressing than to be in some distant front line and know that interest has gone away and you'll struggle to get anything used. I've been in, in that situation myself. I find it profoundly dispiriting because you're there day after day and risking your life for nothing, which is not a place you really want to be. What have you made watching this particular conflict from afar of the evolution of official messaging? I mean, it's obviously in any conflict, if you're trying to report from it while it's going on, wherever your own personal sympathies may lie, it is probably wise to be sceptical about the official line from 
either protagonist. What do you think especially of how the Ukrainians have done this? Do you think their official communications have been relatively plausible in the scheme of things? I think the difference between their media policy and the Russian media policy is that in Ukraine, in those parts of Ukraine that the Ukrainian government holds, the media are free to go and check things for themselves. They do not necessarily have military minders, so the claims can be verified. In the case of the Russians and their obedient lapdog media, not at all. But if you're running a, a thorough tyranny, that's how it's done. Except these days, through the internet, through all kinds of modern sorts of communications, it's very hard to suppress the truth completely. And I think the Russians are finding that. Martin Bell, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week. And look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.